Welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lukas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this episode, we're looking at Catalyst. It's an intensive program to empower young people to critically engage with the war on drugs in the Americas. Speaking with one of their founders, Theo de Castro, and with the Director of Education, Diana Rodriguez-Gomez, to understand how their approach developed from what was a fairly normal summer school into now a truly unique program. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. And to start, I'd like to ask you a bit about the context, because I think everyone knows a bit about the war on trucks in terms of what's happening internationally, but I personally knew very little about what was happening to young people, why this was a topic that young people should learn more about. So what's the, the essence in terms of content that you want to address? I suppose most broadly, the context that we're, we're looking at when we're talking about the war on drugs is a set of punitive policies aimed at, purportedly aimed at, at uh, reducing the production, transport, and consumption of drugs, but that end up having quite nefarious effects and don't even succeed at the stated goals and moreover generate a whole series of different forms of violence along the transnational drug supply chain. And much of that violence ends up impacting youth. In fact, they're one of the demographics that are most affected by the violence that is generated by our drug policies. So speaking broadly, uh, that's sort of the context in which Catalyst is taking place. And then maybe, Diana, you can talk a little bit more specifically to the educational context. Yeah, sure. And, and so when we're talking about the war on drugs, we need to keep in mind that it covers the drug supply chain. And you're going to see how the effects of the war on drugs change according to the place where schools and children are living. So, for example, we know of students living in southern Colombia in coca cropping areas that are facing the direct health effects of glyphosate being the, yeah, um, spread through airplanes. So that's one direct effect. But then when we realize that the war on drugs is is sponsoring the armed conflict in Colombia, we see how schools are being used by armed conflicts as settings as centers for recruitment, also how children have been targeted by armed con actors and how they are living in communities that are facing the direct violence of armed conflict. Then you can also see how students living in urban areas are dealing with or are facing dynamics of micro-trafficking and gang violence and urban violence. So the war on drugs covers across the Americas, like all the different manifestations of violence. I wish I could say like there's only this consequence, but it's a phenomenon that it's affecting children in rural and urban areas. And just And then even more specifically thinking about existing educational programs, what we found is there are no programs to talk about these effects. Uh, when we think of drug education, most programs are focused on the consumption and of just, just saying no or prevention strategies. 
and that we're not actually taking a broader view of drugs and drug policies and the, and the wider social effects they have. And Dion actually conducted a systematic review and found that there is really a glaring absence of any programs that talk about these other side effects and other dimensions of the war on drugs. So I think that's also a key element of the context in which in which yeah. Catalyst arose. Mm -hmm. in, in a sense, these all sound like problems that are crucial to address, but where, where my first instinct would have been to address them in terms of policy, not necessarily in terms of education. So what do you think is the role that education can play in addressing these nefarious side effects of the war on drugs? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, the reason why we're so invested in education is because we see the possibility of opening new conversations about the things that really matter to people living in those areas. In many cases, we see that the school curriculum is completely disconnected from the everyday experiences of these communities. And we think that everybody has the right to understand what's going on why is going on and who's benefiting out of it. So education, it's like the perfect space to open new conversations about these issues. And as I Theo said before, there's no program that's talking about the war on drugs. We have plenty of programs talking about drugs as chemical substances that individuals take, but there's no program inserting this substance within a broader social, political, and historical context. I think, too, drugs, there's just so much stigma that surrounds the topic and it's often taboo and sort of off limits and so thinking about policy change i think often politicians shy away from proposing drug policy reform just because they would they see it as sort of political suicide to forward an idea that to many seems very scary the idea of talking about legalization or regula regulation or anything that's not prohibition and so i think there's a really key role for education to play in opening those conversations and, and making this sort of reducing the taboo that surrounds this topic so that eventually public support could you know build and, and then maybe some of the more top-down change could come about I think as it stands now in, in much of Latin America, there are very powerful interests that, that sort of benefit from the status quo of this sort of militarized prohibition. And so I think to expect that the change is going to come from the top down and that governments are going to make uh, sort of a benevolent policy based on evidence, I think that might be wishful thinking. And so I think we take a much more sort of grassroots approach to it and think about building up a base that is going to eventually push for this kind of reform. And I think the place to start there is with education. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, there you are now running a year-long uh, fellowship program. Could you briefly describe what the structure of the program is, what it looks like? Yeah, sure. So it begins with developed an online curriculum that we are going to launch in January. We've piloted it with last year's cohort, um, and now we're going to open it up. It's open access. Anybody who's interested in working with it can have access to it, and that allows us to reach sort of a, a broader audience. Uh, from then from that pool, so that, that curriculum lasts two to three months from January to around March. Then from the pool of applicant, uh, the pool of students and teachers who work through that curriculum, 
they can then have the option to apply for the rest of the fellowship, which the next step involves uh, coming to an in-person summer incubator in Mexico. And for that, we actually work with student-teacher teams. So of the students and teachers that work through the online curriculum, it's up to them to form a team, one student, one teacher, or a community educator, or counselor, any sort of one educational leader from the community and a young person. They apply together for the fellowship. We then select a cohort of 20 fellows, 10 students, 10 teachers who come to Mexico. Um, this year, we're going to be working with teams from the U.S., Mexico, and Colombia. They come to Mexico for three weeks, where we have intensive program, academic, partially skill building and capacity building, which sort of equip them with the skills they need to launch projects of their own. And over the course of those three weeks, they begin to articulate a community project that they would like to launch in their home communities. And then from there, they return to their communities and work collaboratively to launch those projects with ongoing support from the, the Catalyst team. I think this is one of the first programs that I've seen that specifically works with teacher-student teams. Why did you decide to do that rather than focus on one target group? Um, well, the first two years that we run Catalyst, we only had youth. I mean, it is a youth program. But we realized that once students were back in their communities, they were facing lots of barriers in implementing their community projects. It was very difficult for a student uh, living in a very rural area where nobody talks about drugs to bring this very open approach to the topic. And for students who were attending public schools in big cities, they were coming back to an institution with 1,200 students and they didn't have any allies to help them implement their projects. So this year we decided that we needed to rethink this myth of youth being the future without talking to their elders and learning from people that have more experience than them. And also we realized that we had the capacity to help rethink the terms of that relationship between teachers and students. It's very common to find very vertical relationships within school settings. And what we wanted to do in Catalyst was to work with students and teachers to build more horizontal relationships that will allow them to see each other as allies. And so far, we have seen how this intergenerational focus that we're bringing to the program has I mean, has made those um, community projects much more visible than before. So do I understand it correctly that this past summer was the first time that you had teachers uh, involved? Yeah, that's fair. Yep. So how, how did it go during, during the incubator? What was the dynamics between educators and their students? Um, I think we learned a lot doing it for the first time. I think there was definitely had tension between wanting to preserve the space as, as youth-driven and, and protect that element of the program um, and being kind of unsure as to how, what degree we should keep the teachers separate from that space or when to bring them in. And because, you know, of course, in, in three weeks, you're not going to completely undo years of, sort of certain patterns and, and ideas and, and that sort of vertic more vertical structures. Um, so I think for us, we're still in that process of learning of the right balance of when to have them working collaboratively, when to do work apart. Diana worked more closely with the teachers. I don't know, Diana, what did you have to say? What was, for me, most interesting about the work that we did was 
how by the end of the program, they were shocked by the quality of the work their students could do and the nuance of their ideas. We had many activities in which we play, we shifted the the traditional roles. Many times the students were teaching teachers, the students were providing teachers with feedback and teachers had to, to rethink their role in their school communities. And even the way in which they were referring to their students, there was a lot of paternalism and always saying, my baby, my kid, my student, you know, like diminishing that, that other person. And at the end, they were just talking, using a name to refer to their student. So this year, I think it required a lot of personal work from teachers. And at the same time, they were learning about the war on drugs and how to implement a community project once they were back. Okay, now they are probably in the process of implementing these community projects. Could you maybe share a couple of examples of what such projects look like? Yeah, for sure. Um, So we have one team, for example, working in an area where um, there's an armed group that uh, regularly conducts social cleansing uh, in which basically anyone known to or suspected of, of doing drugs is murdered, basically. And so they are working to think how can they rethink their school's policy, which currently is sort of this no tolerance policy that just for excludes these students who, if, if you know, if a student is found doing drugs, if they expel them, well, then they're exposing them to this very real risk. Uh, and so they're starting to work with the school community to think about how they change that school's policy to, you know, create more of a safe space for students who are, are perhaps involved uh, with drugs in some way. Um, so that involves meeting with parents and with other teachers and starting these very difficult conversations in a very sensitive situation. So I think that's one really exciting and, and bold project that we see, uh, that we're seeing grow out this, this particular summer. What else, Diana? Well, we have one teacher in Southern Colombia who incorporated the war on drugs content into her class. And the student is putting together a survey to collect data on drug use in his school because nobody's talking about it, but he knows it's happening. So he was really inspired by harm reduction and he wanted to bring more of those strategies to his school. Um, we also have a group that we work with an informal community educator who is part of Afro-Colombian Cultural Center in Colombia, and they're working through their community center, through circus workshops and sort of community theater to start talking about the history of racism that is so intimately uh, intertwined with the history of drug policy. And so that's another project being happening there. Um, yeah, and for example, we have Tepito in Mexico. The teacher is a psychologist, and for her career, she had focused on just say no. But now she's working with the student to implement war on drugs classes in her school. She was able to get approval from the principal to reshift the curriculum that the school has used for the last, I mean, for the last years. So to give some context, Tepito is. is- at the beating heart of drug trade in Mexico City. I mean, it's where most drugs entering and leaving the city pass through historically and at present. So, you know, and the students live very, very close to that reality. So that's, that's really exciting to see that space being opened in, in that particular community. Very impressive stories. 
in order to getting uh, quite substantial funding, for example, from the Open Society Foundation. And I was wondering how you communicate your impact to such funders, because of course, it's it's always somewhat hard in education, and it's particularly hard in such an innovative educational space. So how do you show impact? That's so difficult. Yeah, we, we definitely struggle <laughs> with exactly this question, and it's an ongoing uh, discussion amongst ourselves. Um, we've tried to do, you know, pre and post surveys. In general, we find them not adequate to capture the kind of learning that happens. I think that's something we need to prioritize more is sort of spending more time to think about what kind of instruments we could design that truly captures the kind of learning that's happening. So far, we've taken a more qualitative approach, I would say, relaying exactly these kinds of stories. I think to the... I mean, we're only three years into this, and so our first cohort, you know, I think a lot of times changes we're going to see from this program are visible only years down the line. So our plan is to, you know, keep in touch with our alumni and hopefully see, like, capture some of those effects that happened. And Deanna, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I really appreciate you asking that question because, as Thea says, that it's a key struggle that we have. And I remember talking to the, the funder and saying, I know you want numbers, but my numbers won't make you happy because at the end, I, I only have 20 kids. And when you have 20 participants, there's no way you can build one of those big experiments with a control group. So we're also constrained by the size of the project. And it's really hard because sometimes, even though we last year, we conducted qualitative a research and right now we're analyzing the data and we can see how students are really expanding their understanding of not only the war on drugs, but they're expanding their understanding on the history of this region and they're bringing this transnational lens to the analysis of everything that is going on. We have a testimony from a student who's saying, my uncle disappeared a couple of months ago and it was after I went to Catalyst that I, I, I was finally able to make sense of that family event. So even though you have those quotes that capture the richness of their knowledge and their experience, it's not enough. So it will be a great world where we could have donors who are more open to a different way of showing results. And also finding money to fund work on the war on drugs is really, it's a huge challenge. I mean, state sources are not an option for us. Yeah. So if anyone is listening to this and has ideas <laughs> of having, in fact, we're more than open to, to collaborations with, with external researchers or people who might have experience with, yeah, it's an online mm. predicament. I think this year was the first year that you had this online phase. Where did that come from? And how are you thinking about differences between what you can do online and offline? So I think the part of the impetus for the online curriculum was a lot of students, or there's just a lot of variation in the background that students bring with them. Their academic levels are very, very, somebody from an extremely rural context where maybe limited access to school academic level or general knowledge than somebody who's going to a public school in in a city, for example. So the idea was, what could we do to, I mean, level that playing field a, li a little bit. Obviously, we're not going to undo 14 years of, or 10 years of, of, of a failed school system, but 
uh, the thought was, could we provide them at least a common set of, of concepts and basic knowledge before they arrive at, in the summer so that we can, day one, dive a little deeper in these ideas. I think also to, I mean, we're acutely aware that only making our curriculum available to 10 students and 10 teachers a year isn't uh, exactly a very wide impact. And so we, we're, we're thinking of the e-curriculum as a way to possibly make the curriculum and, and resources that we've developed over the years more widely available. Yeah, and I want to I wanna say that at the beginning, we were very skeptical about this e-component. We didn't think it was going to work. And it was actually a great surprise when we started the program this year. And we realized how much knowledge uh, students and teachers both were bringing to the classroom. So that first week of classes was much easier um, than ever before. So at the end, we decided to, to stick to the e-curriculum as a component of the of experience. Yeah. In terms of the difference, I mean some people I mean some people when we tell about the project they said like, oh like the I mean the summer component doesn't sound very saleable. You should just scratch that and focus entirely on the e curriculum. For us it, that's just not an option. because the presential part of the program is so powerful and really nothing can replace that experience of coexisting with people from different countries and, and kind of personal embodied exchange that happens in, in those three weeks. So yeah, I, we do see a great difference between the curriculum and the summer program. Um, so we definitely want to preserve both of those elements. And there's still a lot of challenges with the curriculum that we're still grappling with about precisely, I mean, the same challenges we were trying to confront with the curriculum present themselves again in terms of access to internet and access to computers, of course. Again, the students from more rural backgrounds have less access to, to both of those things. So we're still thinking of new ideas, like would, could it be possible to develop a version of the curriculum uh, in which, like via WhatsApp, um, where students access the articles that we read through there and respond via chat, or uh, recently we ran into somebody who does a radio program, uh, radio programming in rural Ecuador. And so that opened the possibility, could we even think of doing a radio curriculum to reach more rural areas? So access is always a topic that's at the front of our minds and we're still grappling with that. Yeah, it's good to hear that, uh, that the curriculum already worked this year and that uh, clearly then the, the young people and the educators engaged and learned from it. Um, what do you think were the elements that made that possible? Because obviously there are many kind of online learning spaces where no one really engages. So what was successful about yours? I think having the summer part sort of as a carrot at the end of the stick definitely helps. Like we made it very clear that if you want to come to the summer part, we need you to complete as much of the e-curriculum as, as you can given your circumstances. But I think also to precisely the lack of resources and spaces to talk about this topic is a big reason. Um, I think people are very eager to have some kind of structured format to begin to open these discussions. Because, I mean, they're, they're all coming from communities where all of this stuff is going on. Everybody knows, but there's just no space to, to really analyze or talk about it. Uh, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. Diana, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that they are bringing so much, so much knowledge to the whole program that when they are in front of the screen, they are engaging in a conversation. 
And that makes them also feel they are part of a community. And that's what we try to do with, with Catalyst, to build a community where, where people that are interested in these topics can come together and ask difficult questions and, and look for knowledge and, and yeah, keep finding solutions for, for the problems that, that we're facing daily. So maybe that's the hook, their own experiences and, and the eco they're getting from the e-curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I saw that you've done, I think a little while back, is to basically release your curriculum for use in schools. What was the response to that? Oh, um, yeah, so in 2018, we partnered with um, Columbia University to make a curriculum guide for teachers. Um, that we have honestly not <laughs> really followed up on um, in terms of where that's gone or who's been downloading it. So I, I don't know if I can speak to what its reception has been. Um, but that's right, then, then let, me, let me maybe ask the question um, differently. Because from, from what you're saying, it's a real priority to get a different kind of education about drugs and about the war on drugs into schools. Yeah. So how, how do you think that can happen and what has been your experience so far with trying to to support such a shift? I think that's definitely another um, uh, strength of working with the teachers and having them there for the two weeks in the summer. Because I think if you just send a sort of anonymous email saying like, you should adopt this curriculum that talks about drugs in a different way, I think most people kind of put their guard up. So to, have, to be able to work with those teachers and make sure we're on the same page about our motivations and why we think it's important to start these new conversations. And we have seen them, you know, really get it. And, you know, there's this moment where it's a click and it's been amazing to see them go back and start advocating within their school to shift policy around their, you know, their own school policy towards drug use um, or trying to implement new, more innovative uh, drug education curricula. So I think that's one avenue. Um, and then I think the... That will be a new challenge come January when we open up the e-curriculum to see what the reaction is there um, and, and if we run into any resistance from teachers wanting to work with that curriculum. Um, yeah, yeah, and also we have been very open with the use of the of the curriculum. So, for example, now there's a group of people in the Colombian Pacific developing pedagogical materials for kids in marginalized areas, and we're going to have a section, like a catalyst section within that material. We are we're a small organization. We are five people, seven people working together, and that's not enough to be able to transform the terms in which we're talking about drugs in Latin America. So we're always looking for partnerships and allies that will help us communicate this knowledge. We we have what I believe is a very powerful curriculum, and we're always happy to, to share what we know with other people. And I think, yeah, that, that's definitely on our priorities in the coming years is to sort of consolidate all the various material that we generated over the last three years into some kind of manual that we could, you know, disseminate widely to teachers in, in various contexts across across the continent. Um, but again, as Diana said, you know, we are definitely running that at or beyond uh, the bandwidth we have. We're a loose collective of people, most of whom have other academic or community engagements um, 
to review what we can. But if we were to uh, get more funding and be able to consolidate ourselves as more stable NGO, that would definitely be, I think we would want to hire somebody specifically for community outreach and getting the curriculum out there. I think that's definitely the next step we're looking to take. So when people want to run track education in schools differently in a way that resp- that's more responsive to the realities, what would you say the priorities are? Oh, uh, that's a great question because what we learned from working with the group of educators this past summer is that we need to address all the different levels of an institution. So... All schools have regulations relating to drugs. So, for instance, in Colombia, what teachers are expected to do is to call the police of childhood and youth. So the school doesn't take much responsibility towards the kid. It just calls uh, the police to deal with it. So the principal that attended Catalyst this year said the first thing that we need to do is to change those regulations, we need to take responsibility for the lives of those who are being affected by this. So that's one level, the institutional level. Then, of course, you need teachers to talk about this. Uh, what I think it's, it's so we need right now is the willingness to talk about the issues that we care so deeply about. But when you go to a school, you realize that the everyday life of teachers in their everyday life they don't have time to talk about this. So there's, we need principals who will open spaces to talk about this without uh, prioritizing only consumption and without blaming the individual or seeing drug as a problem, right? As a health or a moral problem. And then I think that once you have a community who's aware of the way in which the war on drugs is affecting a group of people, you need people to think about how to bring it into the classroom. And what we want to do or what we're trying to do with teachers is to help them work through all those different levels. And of course, our expertise is more on pedagogical grounds, but um, for next year, we're planning to bring a special session on management uh, how to bring those issues through that institutional at that institutional level, and also how to help uh, school communities design what in Latin America are the roots of attention. I don't know how you how you call it in England. Sorry, how we call it what? <laughs> the, like the, the different steps that a school follows to work with a student who's involved in drug related issues. Like the, the the disciplinary process, or yeah, but it shouldn't be just disciplinary process, right? It shouldn't be just discipline. So yeah. that's what we're trying to do for next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the build of that. I mean, I don't think we're saying that drugs aren't a, a health issue, but it's, they're not only a health issue. And so I think thinking at the level of curriculum and and what should we be taught in classrooms, we sort of situate ourselves in a paradigm of of full spectrum harm reduction. So, of course, the idea of harm reduction um, comes from this idea that we know that just they know programs and the sort of prohibitionist stance towards drugs doesn't work. And there's a lot of evidence to show that these, these programs don't work. And, and so a harm reduction approach says, okay, inevitably some students are going to experiment and, and do drugs. So what is the, how can we 
take as, as many measures as possible so that the risks associated with that are reduced and the harms, the possible harms that can come from, from problematic substance abuse can be minimized. We want to take a step further and say, that's great, we should definitely be doing that. But beyond talking about, again, only the sort of health component, we also need to be talking about the, the various harms caused by drug policy beyond the individual consumption. So that be it, you know, aerial fumigation or the violence that's caused um, uh, between cartels in a black market, the, the participation of the states in that black market, um, et cetera, et cetera, and make that part of the drug education. And, and also a discussion of, okay, now that we have this whole social panorama of, of the various social harms that are caused by our current drug policies, what, how can we begin thinking about reducing those harms too? So not only the health harms, but the, the social and political harms caused by prohibition. So I always like to ask the question, what kind of pitfalls there are to, to be aware of when people want to implement that kind of education? And you've now already talked a lot about what's wrong with traditional drug education, but have you seen things that can still go wrong after that has been taken on board? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think one has to be extremely careful in the way that one presents uh, the idea of harm reduction. Or I think there's always a risk in, in working against the grain of this prohibitionist tradition of that the message becomes like, drugs aren't that bad. Like, you know, like, it's fine to do drugs, kids. Like, everything they told you is, is, is bullshit, so go ahead and do whatever you want. Um, and I think that can, you know, to a 16-year-old, that can seem like an attractive or, yeah, an attractive conclusion or a conclusion that's easy to jump to and it's kind of subversive and, and, and seductive in that way. So I think one has to tread very carefully and being realistic that, like, you know, these aren't risk-free substances. You are still developing, so it's probably inadvisable to, you know, use things in any sort of sustained way at this stage in your life. Um, so that balance between removing the stigma, but also being realistic about the existing harms. And beyond that, I think also just being very, very sensitive to the security situations of many of our participants, where very likely they might have somebody involved in a gang or a cartel in their classroom. So you can't, that that definitely limits the extent of, of which a conversation can be happening. Or, or, you know, you just have to be very careful in the way you frame that discussion. So... I think each, you know, I think you need to be super attentive to the context. But there we defer to participants who, of course, know their context a lot better than we do. And, and we do a lot of learning from them about how they could take this curriculum back and adapt to, to their, their specific situation. Yana, what do you think? I think that, I mean, besides those two big challenges, I mean, because the way in which in our society we talk about drugs, there's a lot of opposition. So I think that before we bring the topic to any classroom, we need to let parents know what's going on in the classroom. Why? What are we going to talk about? Why are we talking about these issues? And also provide them with tools to answer their questions, because I think there there's a lot a lot of reluctance comes from the fact that people don't have tools to have difficult conversations. And that's something that we, that we need to guarantee as teachers before we, mm -hmm. we open the space for these conversations to happen. And when you think back to the beginnings of Catalyst, um, maybe more in, in 
terms of the general pedagogy or even in terms of logistics, are there any things you wish you had known? Everything. Everything. I mean, remember getting flight tickets and passports that first year. Yeah, I mean, we knew we were taking on a big project, but I think never ceases to surprise us how much work it takes to coordinate the logistics of working with these young folks. Many of them have never traveled before, um, nor have anyone in their family or, or close vicinity. So just that fact alone requires so much Uh, logistical legwork and communication, uh, navigating bureaucratic uh, systems, and so on. That and yeah, just like I guess my lesson, the moral is it always takes much more time and effort than, than you might think. We definitely learned, you know, the first year we made silly mistakes like not leaving enough time for exercise or doing it at a facility that didn't have a lot of green space, and by the end, everyone sort of had cabin fever living with a community of 17 to 20 uh, adolescents in close confines for three weeks 24-7 and that comes with its own intensity so the, the importance of, of downtime and unstructured time um, the importance of having a dedicated person on the team uh, to deal with questions of, of mental health um, or just you know just having somebody as the designated person to go and talk to if because uh, often the discussions bring up traumatic events from students lives and so having you know providing the necessary support for them to to work through those things i mean again we don't claim to solve these problems in, in three weeks but yeah i think those were definitely some some of the areas we did a lot of learning over the first couple sessions and what else regarding the curriculum i think the first and the second year we were trying to do too much yeah uh in terms of the history of drogs you know we will try to cover three centuries and then focusing on on a we had like a global perspective and now we still keep that global perspective but we have been more selective on the key cases that help that will help us students and teachers understand why what the war on drugs is so i mean i think it, we have learned that sometimes less is more and opening more space for conversation and for students to really connect the curriculum with, again, with what they're going through in their own communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we started off with this idea that we have every minute sort of accounted for and planned for, and, and I think we feared that not have enough material to give them, but I think that's something we've learned is, of course, you need structure and you want an intention, a clear intention to every sort of moment in the curriculum, but to leave more space um, and also to just give more time for them to digest these, for many of them, there is a lot of new concepts. And so not, rather than trying to rush through things, giving it the time that it means, even if it means you don't get to cover uh, all of the content, you know, going for more depth rather than, than breadth. Um, yeah. Yeah. It all makes a lot of sense. Are there any particular books or people or other resources that, that influenced you that listeners should check out? <laughs> yeah. Maybe also your own work there, <laughs> if there's anything specific you want to point to. I think for me, in the very initial stages, some key books were uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander on the sort of situation in, in the U.S., 
narco historia on the situation in Mexico, drug war capitalism by Don Paley for a sort of overview of, of the war on drugs in the context of, of the Americas. Oh. Um, what else, Yana? I mean, I use Clan Colombia from Lindsay Poland, and I really love the work of Paul Gutenberg. I don't remember the name of the book right now, but it's on... Oh, yeah, that one. We, we really use that one. That one, it's, it's really great. Um, David Courtright is a historian of drug policy who kind of opened my eyes to the longer history of drugs. And also... We love Tastes of Paradise. Uh-huh. <laughs> that has been very, very useful to build their yeah. curriculum. But I think as my as my final question, I'd like to ask you if you could each have a billboard anywhere to get a message out towards educators, what would it say? Okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think how to formulate this in a way that would fit on a billboard. Something mm. something to the effect of like take take your students <laughs> and their political agencies seriously. I think so many of existing drug programs work within this paradigm that sees students as these sort of vulnerable, at-risk, fragile subjects, which is not to discount the, you know, the very real uh, systemic issues that, that many of them are up against. But I think instead of thinking of them as needing this sort of paternal protection, rather, is there a way for us to think about them or, or provide an education that allows them to, to take seriously and that takes seriously their, the potential for their becoming political and then being political subjects. Yeah, I think that the key message is don't underestimate the power of your students to understand the world around them. Um, that's the first one. I don't think that any content is too difficult for our students to understand. I think it's our responsibility as teachers to come up with the right pedagogical devices to be able to share with them the information that really matters. Um, it should be a high, a something that you talk about in high school. The reason why the project started was because Theo and some friends realized that it was up to their undergrad that they learned about the war on drugs. And that's definitely too late. So that would be one. And the second one is don't stick to the same curricula. Work through your curriculum every year. Bring new topics. Don't be afraid to experiment and explore. I think that as teachers, we're all curious and we want to keep learning. So why using the same planning over and over and over? And I think that that repetition is what it's what's keeping these key topics outside of a school premises. Yeah, it's it's of course comfortable to stick to to what's known. But I think you're making a very good point that most people are actually in education because they're curious and willing to learn. And of course, keeping the curriculum updated is a great way to learn. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything I should have asked? Anything yeah. you'd like to add? No. I think, yeah, maybe just only to stress that we are always welcome. We always welcome collaborations. And yeah, I mean, this project has... Has, was made possible and, and has only grown by connecting li- like-minded people. So if anyone who ends up listening to this is, is interested in getting involved or has ideas, we'd be more than happy to, to connect with them. All right. So I'll also put the, the contact information into the show notes. So, yeah, definitely. Perfect. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. 
If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Next time, it's time for a major shift in focus. Speaking to Professor James Tooley, a leading researcher and educational entrepreneur who argues that there are hugely important players in the educational space that are often overlooked, but that actually do a huge amount of good. And he's talking about private for-profit schools that serve the poor in developing countries. So stay tuned to hear about his fascinating and certainly controversial research. 